0: Chapter 12a of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter 12a A Year of Waiting and Trial. Again Defeated for the Senate. Depression and Neglect. Lincoln Enlarging His Boundaries. On the Stump in Ohio. A Speech to Kentuckians. Second visit to Cincinnati a short trip to Kansas Lincoln in New York City on the 2nd of November 1858 the state election was held in Illinois the chief significance of this election was due to the fact that the Legislature then chosen would decide whether Douglas or Lincoln should be sent to the Senate at Washington The result showed that Lincoln had by his hard efforts won a victory for his cause and for his party, but not for himself The Republican state ticket was elected by a majority of about four thousand votes, but in the Legislature a number of members held over from the election of two years before, and the Republican gains, though considerable, were not quite sufficient to overcome this adverse element. When the Legislature met, Douglas was re-elected to the Senate by a small majority. It is said that Lincoln was deeply grieved by his defeat. When some one inquired of him how he felt over the result, he answered that he felt like the boy that stubbed his toe. It hurt too bad to laugh, and he was too big to cry. A few days after his return to Springfield, there was pressed on the attention of the defeated candidate a matter which must have been peculiarly unwelcome at the time, but which was accepted with habitual fortitude. What this matter was is revealed in the following letter. Springfield, November 16th eighteen fifty eight hon n b judd my dear sir yours of the fifteenth is just received i wrote you the same day as to the pecuniary matter i am willing to pay according to my ability but i am the poorest hand living to get others to pay i have been on expense so long without earning anything that i am absolutely without money now for even household expenses Still if you can put in two hundred and fifty dollars for me towards discharging the debt of the committee I will allow it when you and I settled the private matter between us This with what I have already paid with an outstanding note of mine will exceed my subscription of five hundred dollars This too is exclusive of my ordinary expenses during the campaign All of which being added to my loss of time and business Bears pretty heavily upon one no better off than I am but as I had the post of honor, it is not for me to be over-nice. You are feeling badly, and this too shall pass away. Never fear. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. Hon. E. M. Haynes, who was a member of the Legislature of 1858-59, to and a supporter of Lincoln for the Senate, states that Lincoln seemed greatly depressed by his defeat and that his friends were also somewhat disheartened regarding his future prospects, and neglected him to some extent. Some time after the senatorial election, says Mr. Haynes, Governor Bissell gave a reception at his house, which I attended with my wife. After we had paid our respects to the Governor and Mrs. Bissell, we passed on to an adjoining room where there was quite a throng of people engaged in conversation. Mr. Lincoln was standing near the centre of the room entirely alone with his usual sad countenance, and apparently unnoticed by any one. I said to my wife, Here is Mr. Lincoln. He looks as if he had lost all his friends. Come and have an introduction to him, and cheer him up. Mr. Lincoln received us very cordially, and we entered into a general conversation, apparently unnoticed and attracting no attention from others, as they passed and repassed around us. Dancing was going on in the adjacent rooms and mr lincoln invited my wife to join him in the dancing which she did and he apparently took much pleasure in the recreation my wife afterwards related to me much that mr lincoln had said in their conversation during the evening his despondency became much dispelled after they became engaged in conversation indeed she said that he seemed to be putting forth an effort to get out of the gloomy condition which had come upon him from the result of his senatorial canvass He had occasion during their conversation to refer to his age, remarking incidentally that he was almost fifty years old, whereupon, as if suddenly reflecting that his age was a good part of a man's life, and as if unwilling to relinquish his hold upon the future, he suddenly braced himself up, and said, "'But, Mrs. Haines, I feel that I am good for another fifty years yet.'" During the winter following the senatorial debate Lincoln was occupied with his private affairs. The love of public speaking had become so strong with him that he prepared a lecture and delivered it to the public at several places during the winter. It was somewhat humorous in character, but was not much of a success, and he soon declined further invitations to deliver it. To one correspondent he wrote in March, 1859, Your note, inviting me to deliver a lecture in Galesburg, is received. I regret to say that I cannot do so now. I must stick to the courts for a while. I read a sort of a lecture to three different audiences during the last month, and this, but I did so under circumstances which made it a waste of time—of no value whatever." The following autumn, 1859, Senator Douglas visited Ohio and made speeches for the Democratic Party there. From the Republican ranks there arose a cry for Lincoln, whose superiority to Douglas in the great debate of the preceding year was still fresh in the public mind. He promptly answered it and spoke in that state with marked effect. At Cincinnati he addressed himself especially to Kentuckians, and said, in a strain which is now seen to be prophetic, "'I should not wonder if there were some Kentuckians in this audience. We are close to Kentucky. But whether that be so or not, we are on elevated ground, and by speaking distinctly I should not wonder if some of the Kentuckians would hear me on the other side of the river.' For that purpose I propose to address a portion of what I have to say to the Kentuckians. I say, then, in the first place to the Kentuckians, that I am what they call me, as I understand it, a black Republican. I think slavery is wrong, morally and politically. I desire that it should be no further spread in these United States, and I should not object if it should gradually terminate in the whole Union. While I say this for myself, I say to you Kentuckians that I understand you differ radically with me upon this proposition, that you believe slavery is a good thing, that slavery is right, that it ought to be extended and perpetuated in this Union. Now, there being this broad difference between us, I do not pretend, in addressing myself to you Kentuckians, to attempt proselyting you. That would be a vain effort. I will tell you, so far as I am authorized to speak, for the opposition, what we mean to do with you. We mean to treat you as nearly as we possibly can as Washington, Jefferson, and Madison treated you. We mean to leave you alone, and in no way to interfere with your institution, to abide by all and every compromise of the Constitution, and in a word coming back to the original proposition, to treat you, so far as degenerated men, if we have degenerated, may according to the examples of those noble fathers washington jefferson and madison we mean to remember that you are as good as we that there is no difference between us other than the differences of circumstances we mean to recognize and bear in mind always that you have as good hearts in your bosoms as other people or as we claim to have and treat you accordingly we mean to marry your girls when we have a chance the white ones i mean and i have the honor to inform you that i once did have a chance in that way i have told you what we mean to do i want to know now what you mean to do i often hear it intimated that you mean to divide the union whenever a republican or anything like it is elected president of the united states a voice that is so that is so one of them says i wonder if he is a kentuckian a voice he is a douglas man well then i want to know what you are going to do with your half of it are you going to split the ohio down through and push your half off a piece or are you going to keep it right alongside of us outrageous fellows or are you going to build up a wall some way between your country and ours by which that movable property of yours can't come over here any more to the danger of your losing it do you think you can better yourselves on that subject by leaving us here under no obligation whatever to return those specimens of your movable property that come hither you have divided the union because we would not do right with you as you think upon that subject when we cease to be under obligations to do anything for you how much better off do you think you will be will you make war upon us and kill us all why gentlemen i think you are as gallant and as brave men as live that you can fight as bravely in a good cause, man for man, as any other people living, that you have shown yourselves capable of this upon various occasions. But man for man you are not better than we are. And there are not so many of you as there are of us. You will never make much of a hand at whipping us. If we were fewer in numbers than you, I think that you could whip us. If we were equal, it would likely be a drawn battle." But being inferior in numbers, you will make nothing by attempting to master us." The Hon. W. M. Dixon, whose interesting account of Lincoln's first visit to Cincinnati and the disappointments attending it has already been given in this narrative, says of this second visit, as contrasted with the obscurity of the first, "'Lincoln returned to the city with a fame wide as the continent, with the laurels of the Douglas contest on his brow and the presidency almost in his grasp. He returned, greeted with the thunder of cannon, the strains of martial music, and the joyous plaudits of thousands of citizens thronging the streets. He addressed a vast concourse on Fifth Street Market, was entertained in princely style at the Burnett House, and there received with courtesy the foremost citizens come to greet this western rising star. In December of the same year Lincoln visited Kansas and addressed the people of that troubled state upon the political questions then before the country. At Leavenworth, Atchison, Elwood, and other places he was met by large gatherings of eager listeners who were charmed and convinced by his fresh and reassuring utterances. His journeys were complete ovations, and he returned to Illinois leaving a host of new friends behind him. As several of Lincoln's biographers make no reference to this Kansas visit, and the entire matter seems more or less obscured, the following letter, lately written by Mr. Harry W. Stewart, of Carlsbad, New Mexico, is of much interest. I have recently seen a reference to Lincoln's visit to Kansas as if the fact were not clearly established. In this connection I may offer a personal recollection of my father, James G. Stewart, who was a physician practicing in the little town of Elwood, Kansas, from 1856 to 1860. He said that both Lincoln and Seward came out and spoke in St. Joseph, Missouri, just across the river from Elwood. On each occasion a large following of Free State men went over to St. Joe to hear the speech, and incidentally to support the speaker in case of violence, which had been freely predicted. According to this reminiscence, Lincoln crossed the Missouri into Kansas, my father having the honor of taking him in a buggy to a small town fourteen miles distant from Elwood in Donifan County. They drove out to Troy, where Mr. Lincoln made a speech. From here I think he went on to Lawrence and other places before returning to St. Joseph, but have no account of his movements beyond Troy. I think it was in the year 1858, and must have been in the summer time, for the party took Mr. Lincoln over the Missouri on a ferry. It did not make trips oftener than about once in two hours. When Lincoln came to the bank on the Missouri side, the boat had just gone. There was no waiting-room or benches to sit on, and some of the party were inclined to think they were in hard luck. When Lincoln found out how it was, he said, It's all right. We'll sit right down on the sand and wait for the boat. Then they all sat down on the ground and listened to genuine Lincoln's stories till the time was up my father often spoke with delight of this incident i have looked in vain in lincoln histories for a more definite account of this kansas trip of the actual fact there can be no doubt lincoln's fame as we have seen had now extended to the east where he seems to have been looked upon as a rising man and an interesting figure in national politics invitations to visit the east now began to reach him in the following february eighteen sixty he went to Brooklyn, for the purpose of delivering a lecture in Mr. Beecher's church. The invitation had given him much pleasure, and he prepared himself thoroughly. Indeed, it is said that no effort of his life cost him so much labor as this. In the Plymouth Congregation of Brooklyn there was an association of young men which was successful in getting an annual course of six lectures of the highest order. This association discerned in Lincoln a man worthy of a place in its course, and invited him to give such a lecture. Meanwhile, some prominent Republican politicians of New York had heard of him as a possible candidate for the Presidency, and desired him to make a speech in that city in order to determine whether he would be the man to present to the Republican National Convention, in case Mr. Seward could not be nominated. Lincoln informed these gentlemen of his Brooklyn engagement but said he would speak in New York if the Brooklyn club gave its consent. That club agreed to this arrangement, and thus it was decided that Lincoln's speech should be delivered in New York City, instead of Brooklyn, as had been first intended. Mr. R. C. McCormick, who was a member of the committee in charge of the arrangements, says, When Mr. Lincoln came to New York City, there was some confusion in the arrangements. He had at first been invited to appear in Brooklyn but upon deliberation his friends thought it best that he should be heard in new york reaching the astor house on saturday february twenty fifth he was surprised to find by announcement in the public prints that he was to speak at the cooper institute he said he must review his address if it was to be delivered in new york what he had prepared for mr beecher's church folks might not be altogether appropriate to a miscellaneous political audience saturday was spent in a review of the speech and on sunday morning he went to plymouth church where apparently he greatly enjoyed the service on monday morning i waited upon him with several members of the young men's republican union into whose hands the preparations for the meeting at the cooper institute had fallen we found him in a suit of black much wrinkled from its careless packing in a small valise he received us cordially apologizing for the awkward and uncomfortable appearance he made in his new suit and expressing himself surprised at being in New York. His form and manner were indeed very odd, and we thought him the most unprepossessing public man we had ever met. I spoke to him of the manuscript of his forthcoming address, and suggested to him that it should be given to the press at his earliest convenience, in order that it might be published in full on the morning following its delivery. He appeared in much doubt as to whether any of the papers would care to print it and it was only when i accompanied a reporter to his room and made a request for it that he began to think his words might be of interest to the metropolitan public he seemed wholly ignorant of the custom of supplying slips to the different journals from the office first putting the addresses in type and was charmingly innocent of the machinery so generally used even by some of our most popular orators to give success and eclat to their public efforts the address was written upon blue foolscap paper all in his own hand and with few interlineations i was bold enough to read portions of it and had no doubt that its delivery would create a marked sensation throughout the country lincoln referred frequently to douglas but always in a generous and kindly manner it was difficult to regard them as antagonists many stories of the famous illinois debates were told us and in a very short time his frank and sparkling conversation won our hearts and made his plain face pleasant to us all. During the day it was suggested that he should be taken up Broadway and shown the city, of which he knew but little, stating, I think, that he had been here but once before. At one place he met an Illinois acquaintance of former years, to whom he said, in his dry, good-natured way, "'Well, B., how have you fared since you left Illinois?' to which B. replied, I have made a hundred thousand dollars, and lost all. How is it with you, Mr. Lincoln?" "'Oh, very well,' said Lincoln. "'I have the cottage at Springfield, and about eight thousand dollars in money. If they make me vice-president with Seward, as some say they will, I hope I shall be able to increase it to twenty thousand. And that is as much as any man ought to want.' we visited a photographic establishment upon the corner of broadway and Bleecker streets where he sat for his picture the first taken in new york at the gallery he met and was introduced to hon george bancroft and had a brief conversation with that gentleman who welcomed him to new york the contrast in the appearance of the men was most striking the one courtly and precise in his every word and gesture with the air of a transatlantic statesman the other bluff and awkward his very utterance an apology for his ignorance of metropolitan manners and customs i am on my way to massachusetts he said to mr bancroft where i have a son at school who if report be true already knows much more than his father chapter twelve a recording by bill borst